Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And today, uh, another therapist to talk to. How exciting. We're going to therapy each other in... No, no, we're not. We're really not. We've just been chatting about names, and the person sitting in front of me today is called Veronica Valley. Do I score Hi, points? Do I score points for that pronunciation? You did it well. I have a quite a track record on my podcast for absolutely mangling people's names repetitively, so you did really well. Well, I usually forget everything, so <laughs> when you end up as a completely different name, you know what's happened. <laughs> so um, I'm, I, you tell me you're in Cambridge, but normally you're based somewhere else, so tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I'm originally from the UK, uh, Cambridge area, and I married an American, so I've been in the States uh, for about 11 years or so. We're on the West Coast, and I'm, yeah, currently just at home for my first sort of, well, I don't want to say post-pandemic, but my first visit since, you know, the whole COVID situation, Uh, see my mom, just deal with a few things, you know, I just couldn't put it off any longer. and I felt, you know, after I've had my vaccines and stuff, I've got to get over here. So it's yes. always um, equally very weird and completely normal at exactly the same time. Yes, that's life, I think, isn't it? Mm, mm, yeah. For the foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the way that at the moment, the COVID figures have gone through the roof and uh, we're relaxing all the, the restrictions. I see all PCR tests have been reduced today. Oh, so that'll save us a, a fortune. Yeah, well, at least you can get a test in the UK. In the USA, the lateral flow tests are non-existent. Yeah, you have to go and wait like 48 hours for your PCR, which makes it pretty much useless by the time you've done that anyway. So, yeah, we have a real testing problem there. Well, enough of COVID. We're going to put that behind us and we're going to talk about more interesting and actually, in a way, more problematical sort of subjects. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So I, um, when I was in the UK, I was a psychotherapist and I uh, specialized in working with addiction. That's my background. And like most people who work in addiction, I went into this field because of my own personal history. I've been sober for uh, over 21 years, coming up to 22 years. I got sober when I was 20, thank you, when I was 27. So it was quite young Um, and it's, you know, given me everything. I mean, my life is just, uh, been revolutionized by not just the stopping drinking, but the um, 
the work that is required, the emotional work that is required to, to sustain sobriety. So I, I worked in the UK in different rehabs and I had a private practice at Harley Street. Um, and then when I moved to the USA with my husband, my American husband, I kind of took all of that online. I wrote a couple of books that I self-published that did really well. Uh, and then I have another book coming out with Sound True in uh, January, February time, February time in the UK. Um, and I've just I've just always worked in different ways with and I'm really specialized now in working just with uh, mostly women who uh, want to change their relationship with alcohol. So, okay. yeah, I do that really as a coach now. I call myself a sober coach. Yes. OK. So you give me tons to unpack. So thank you for that. So brilliant. <laughs> so um, I'm guessing um, they always say that if alcohol were to be invented and brought into the world now, it would yeah. never be licensed because of the, the negative effects of it and such like. But it, it is such a part of the social fab fabric, isn't it? Yeah. That it's, it's a real problem. What, what's, what's a sign or what are the first signs we need to look out for that we may have a problem? So this is how I always present it to people, is that people who struggle with their relationship with alcohol, they do four things. They drink. They think about drinking, they think about not drinking, and they recover from drinking. Um, people who don't have a problem, they don't think about it. You know, I they just, you know, have a drink every so often. It doesn't rent any space in, in their heads. And it's the renting space in our heads that's the indicator that the alcohol is taking up too much energy. And I call it bandwidth. In, in that this is very typical of my clients is that, um, alcohol is taking up 20 to 30% of their bandwidth. Now you can do a lot with 70% bandwidth. You can get a degree, you can travel, you can have a business, you can raise kids, you can buy a house, all those things. But what you can't do, Russell, is emotionally grow the way that you're meant to because you don't have the bandwidth, because you are spending that bandwidth on arguing with yourself about whether you are gonna have a drink tonight or not, or whether you drank too much of the weekend or maybe you should cut down, maybe you should do dry January, all of that kind of stuff. It just takes up energy. Mm. So that is, you know, I don't, there's all the other signs, there's all, all sorts of um, lists and quizzes, but that's what resonates with my clients is that it's really, for me, an alcohol problem is, inter it cut, the internal problem happens way, way, way before the external stuff that we can notice, which is like a DUI and, you know, missing work and that kind of stuff. That's external. It's, it's internal years before anyone can see it on the outside, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I love that. So you said, let me just, uh, just capture that for, for people because I think it's useful. So the thinking about drinking, the thinking about not drinking. Yes. And then yeah. the fourth one was recovery. But what was the third one? I missed that. Drinking, thinking about drinking, ah. thinking about not drinking and recovering from drinking. And I think the big one is thinking about not drinking. Yes. Only people with a problem think about not drinking or not drinking for a bit. Yes. People who, and so the other analogy that I give is, you know, people who don't have a problem with alcohol, they think about alcohol the same way I think about sandwiches. So I might have a sandwich for lunch and think, oh, that's nice. And then tomorrow I'll have some soup and maybe I'm at a party on Saturday and a plate of sandwiches goes by and I think, oh, I'll have a couple of those and I enjoy them. And then the plate goes around later and I go, no, I'm good, thanks. That's literally how much thought I give sandwiches. So that's like my husband and alcohol. He has maybe three drinks a month. He doesn't really think about it, you know. 
Um, it's it's that when we are spending time thinking, I shouldn't drink for a bit, or I should drink less, or I'll do dry January, or do it's the thinking about not drinking that is a real indicator that why would you be thinking about not drinking? Mm. But but there's the, but there's also a volume problem as well, isn't it? For example, I'm working with someone who has nothing, didn't come to see us anything to do with drinking until I did an audit and realised she's drinking two and a half bottles of gin a week, plus about 15 bottles of wine. But he isn't thinking about drinking. He is just drinking. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like an unconscious thing. So so that can be part of it as well. So, it? It's that it's that other people can see it in you sometimes before you can see it in yourself. Perhaps. Yeah, it's it's incredible. The the self-deception that we're capable of is quite fascinating. I, you probably find that quite interesting yourself. Mm. Um, a lot of that is because particularly in the UK, we have normalized abnormal drinking. So I'm going to guess that this individual probably is relatively successful in various areas of their life. That's a lot of my clients, you know, on the outside, they've checked the boxes. They've got a degree, the nice house, the nice car, they go on. So and and we have normalized abusive drinking. We've you know, there's there's lots of ways in our culture that excess and it is, you know, a drinking problem is a homeless person. You're not that. So the two and a half bottles of gin and the 20 bottles of wine, that's normal because we see that around with people who have nice cars and all that kind of stuff. We've just normalized what is abusive drinking. But also you could be a high functioning alcoholic, can't you? So it can appear that you're okay, but but you're not. Uh, And that that self-deception, I think, is a really good word because often you often see it in relationships, don't you, where one party is worried because of the volume of alcohol being concerned by the other person, but the other person's not concerned and is functioning well. But it's like a ticking time bomb, I'm guessing, is it? Yeah, like the word functioning alcoholic, uh, what that typically means is they still have their job or they're still working. And the reason for that is, in my experience, the job is the last thing to go because the job is where the money is, the money's where the booze is. So, you, you know, the relationships will break down before the job goes typically. So we use that, you know, well, you know, they went to work every day as functioning, but the reason for that is that that's what people will hold on to. And it's the last thing to go as it progresses and gets worse. Yes. And so, and so people, so people can spot it. You've given them some great tips there. People can spot it. And then the, the issue is that you have to find some support because actually this is a thing that does actually need help. And you and I both probably do different things here. But the common approach is often the 12-step thing. So, I mean, do you have a view on, on that approach before we talk about your approach? Yeah, so I I got sober through the 12 steps because when I got sober 21 and a half years ago, there wasn't anything else. Yeah. Um, unless you could afford to go to rehab, which I couldn't. There wasn't, I mean, the internet wasn't even a thing. That that was it, That there wasn't really any other options. So, um, I found it personally very useful and I always, you know, want to make it clear the 12 steps are simply ancient spiritual wisdom so that we can get into fit enough shape, which is become alcohol free. Work the 12 steps. It's just ancient spiritual wisdom. It's stuff that's been passed down for centuries. It's not a new thing. Um, And then the program also states, you know, then go and get some professional help. It does actually say that in the big book of AA, but most people don't read it. Um, So I think it's a very helpful approach. However, I've always felt 
that there should be other options yeah. and that um that we need it's not uh, the perfect fit for everybody it's not suitable for everybody and lots of people don't go there and don't relate or identify so we need other options and it's also it's a peer-led program it's a, it's a, it's spiritual tools i haven't met anyone who struggles with an alcohol problem who doesn't have other issues that usually need some kind of professional intervention you know um attachment relationship relating you know limiting beliefs all of that kind of stuff then needs to have other input so i think it's it's great i to I, I love it i still am part of it um but i'm very supportive of different methods do you do you see a difference in the way that um alcohol affects manifests itself um and the way of working with the different genders because you say it's focused more on women now do you think there's a difference in approach? I think it's. I think there is different. The reason, really, I work with more women is because they identify with my story, and so I mean, I do work with men. I do have men in my groups, but it's mostly women. Mm. I think what what really kind of uh, uh, interests me is that, so I'm you know I'm forty nine. I'm um, Generation X, and I'm from that generation that in the nineties, um, binge drinking was sold as feminism to us yeah, yeah. and so Just we believe yeah we believed that we were you know drinking like the boys that we were that was equality um so i think my women my age we we just again abusive drinking was normalized for us and then in the last five years or so maybe a bit longer is this this whole kind of culture of mummy needs wine these yeah. just hilarious memes of like motherhood is so awful, you know, this is mummy juice and, you know, mummy needs gin, all of that kind of stuff that's really, really damaging for women. And women do have, we can't drink as much as men. We have lots of um, consequences. There's nothing worse in the world than being a drunk mother. That's kind of the low, you know, being a drunk father is not as bad as being a drunk mother. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's like a piling drink on women and then judging them for drinking too much. So I think there is some unique problems that women have. Um, I have lots of women going through menopause who, who drink too much and, and that they really, you know, alcohol makes that whole situation worse. So I think drink is so really pushed on women um, in, in you know, whatever stage of life that you're in. Uh, so I think there are some particular unique issues that women have. Mm. It's certainly marketed to women in a different way, isn't it? Mm. It's the glamour, I mean, you know, female-led drinks, almost like Prosecco is, is, yeah. is the drink of the moment, isn't it? And yeah. it's sort of seen as fun, glitzy, all that sort of stuff. And it's, you know, you're missing out, you're, you're missing the lifestyle. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the, ma the male is a much more a macho sort of, sort of yeah. thing. So, so I get that. And I can see how, you know, that, that glass of wine is really interesting. You know, you, it's, it's seen as that reward, isn't it, at the end of the day? You know, you're, you know you, because you've, you've, you've suffered through motherhood and your husband and your relationships. Now it's time to have a reward. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the sort of, and it's, it, it's the link to dopamine, which I find interesting because mm -hmm. it, is, it, is it is a more subtle approach it's with mm -hmm. women than it is with men. I think men, tend to find it as a more sociable thing or where it starts. You know, yeah. it starts It starts because men like to be in clubs and like to be in groups and the fact yeah. that you drink is a form of group. So, yeah. um, but women, so tend to, can do, women tend to drink more on their own or does that not correlate? 
I think I think that's true. I think that it's it's sold to us as a vehicle. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you think for men. I, I have I write about this in my book. I have a theory that um, alcohol for men is um, one of the few ways that they're allowed to express emotions. So it's completely acceptable to be crying on your best friend's shoulder because your football team just lost or, you know, whatever, and, and everyone giving you a hug. But if alcohol wasn't involved, nobody would go in a, you know, no man would do that within a mile of each other. So I feel that there's something like men are so, there's no permission for men to express their feelings, and but alcohol gives them that sort of avenue to do that. And, and you know, say, I love you, mate, and all that kind of stuff. So we, the reason uh, alcohol sold to us as a vehicle, it's a, we, we get sold a belief system mm. before we even drink. So we are sold this belief system that if you think about how we grew up, it was never presented, not drinking, was ever, it was never presented to us as an option. It's like you're going to get your driver's license and get a job and you're going to drink alcohol because that's what adults do. Because alcohol is the best way to get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxed thing, rewarding yourself, and to get romance and sex. So that's what's sold to us. And who doesn't want that, mm. <laughs> right? And and if you were someone like me, as m there's so many people, you know, you want connection and friends and excitement and fun, but feel inadequate and not, you know, alcohol just, you know, for 20 quid will get you to that place, I mean. Yeah. And, and it's socially acceptable, whereas cocaine exactly gets you that place, but there's a risk. And, and what's fascinating about not drinking, and certainly when I stopped drinking, um, I mean, I had people who said, we don't want you to come out with us because you're judging us when you're, drink when you're not drinking, because actually everything's hilarious when you're drunk. And because when you're, when you're sitting there and you're not drunk, <laughs> it's not hilarious at all. Drunk people that, are really boring. They're so boring. So boring. And, it, and, you know, being the designated driver now is a, is a, is a good thing because that's given uh, non-drinkers a sort of license. But that fighting the social conditioning and stereotyping is such an important part of recovery, isn't it? Mm. Because because that's something that's hard to really challenge on your own because the, the messaging is so clever and insidious, isn't it? Yeah, and I really try and emphasize, emphasize this in my messaging is that um, I don't come from a place of like, look, alcohol is really bad for you. You know, it's, you know, one of the leading causes of cancer and breast cancer in women, like, because it's just like, it's really bad for you. I try and come from a place of, by the way, I can go to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing with myself anytime I want with no cost. So I actually have a t-shirt, I had it printed saying, I'm having way more fun than you are. Mm. Uh, what I push back hard against is, um, what makes you think I'm not having fun? Because seriously, if this wasn't fun, I'd have been drunk 20 years ago. Yeah. I really want to smash the belief system. It's a perception that alcohol, alcohol, uh, alcohol equals fun, sober equals boring, because mm. that is a big deception. So I can get all of those, and I, you know, I've done all the things sober. I was 27 when I got sober. I was going night clubbing when I was 28, 29. I was going to festivals. I was doing all the things, vacations yeah. in Spain. I did it all sober. Yeah. And much to my amazement, it was way better. Yeah. And it's like, oh my, yeah, 
Yeah. The, every, the, it, it's, the connections with people are more authentic and real and meaningful and not uncomfortable. Everything was better sober. So I push back and go like, sure, you can drink if you're prepared to pay the cost. And I don't mean money. Yeah. But don't think that I'm sitting here not having fun yeah. and all the things because you can get all of the things sober. That's kind of my message is you don't have to drink to get to that land, by the way. Yeah. And it's and it's important that it's interesting. You brought up the point about motherhood, but being the child of an alcoholic is is a very difficult thing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, how many you know messed up adults we meet who at the heart have alcoholism in their parental yeah. base somewhere you know it's it's one of the features you see around attachment isn't it so I just wonder yeah. if you had a view on that yeah I, the other thing is is that I don't think people are realizing is what we're doing is role modeling using a, an anesthetic agent to deal mm. with our feelings and and it's that part that that I feel is made it does the most damage is that Mummy's had a hard day, that's why she's having wine. You know, daddy's had a stressful day at work, that's why he's having two or three or four beers. And it's the role modeling that that life, parenting is so hard and being your parent is so hard that I, I need to drink to just cope with that. It's my treat, my reward for, you know, being a parent. It was, it, it, this is, again, it's just about perception. Mm. Parenting is way harder if you drink, way harder. Yeah. Where all of my friends who, I have two, youngish kids and all my friends who you know my best friend who drinks very occasionally she's, you know she said you know i'll have a couple of glasses of wine on saturday night it's just sunday i'm just done it's awful having a small child and being having a bit of a headache and being a bit tired um so uh yeah it, and it does have generational effects then on on families and i think it's not always necessarily the drinking it's the numbing of feelings mm. and not having developing because we default to alcohol as a way to deal with x y and z so we don't develop the skills that we need as human beings as i'm sure you know this to deal with disappointment or frustration or all of that kind of stuff because we're like alcohol fixes it alcohol fixes it and it's the role modeling of using outside fixes for internal problems yes it's it's that feeling of when you're drinking you're not really alive you're not mm -hmm. really present are you so it's the bandwidth you don't and, yes and it's the same, it's the same with, and it's the same with um many of the anti-depression anti-anxiety pills you get as well as that it's that numbing effect that you get in the that central bit of your brain which is the same bit that affects alcohol and it's 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 walking through line pe life people thinking they're dealing with everything as you say but actually they're running away is not dealing with anything it's a strategy but it's, it's not the greatest of all is it so go on no no i was agreeing yeah well, it's it's great when we agree isn't it <laughs> 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 so um um so you say on your website that uh, th that uh, you finally heard someone describe the inner world of someone with an alcohol problem and you understood with crystal clarity that there was a solution to your problem and 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 I thought that was quite interesting that someone can make a difference. Someone else can help you see this thing in perspective. So perhaps you could unpack that a bit for us. So um, we, we know that connection is really, really important. All the research supports that. And the program that I teach, the five pillars of sobriety, one of them is connection because all human beings need 
meaningful connection and, and the emphasis is on meaningful it's not just you know on the surface hi how are you it's people we all need people who really know us that we can be vulnerable with so um I mean, that's part of the reason that AA has been around for so long is it provides community. And for me, when I stopped drinking at 27, I lost all my friends. I, I um, realized that most of them were fair weather drinking buddies, but I didn't, nobody at 27 was staying in on a Saturday night. Like I didn't have anyone to hang out with. And you feel, I think maybe it's, it's getting better, most of my clients report when you stop drinking you feel like you're the only one like everyone around you family neighbors co-workers so we need to be with people who um, understand how we feel what we're going through but also it's so powerful to have people a bit further down the road who can say I felt like that I remember going through that this is what I did this is how I feel now that kind of saved me like seeing people and thinking could that be possible for me like mm. they're they're kind of normal just like I am maybe and it gave me hope so connection is the most healing and life-sustaining thing we can do I think and so you've written a book which you alluded to earlier called Soberful surprisingly enough that's, that's <laughs> the name of your website a very good branding so tell us tell me about, about the book who is it for what's it full of well it's really a personal development program and lots of people who've read it have said it's really helpful for anybody not just people who who have a problem with alcohol it, it's really um I, I, one of the things i teach is that everybody has to do personal development work everybody on the planet but most people don't realize that mm. they just sort of bumble along when you have an alcohol problem it, it's kind of a wake-up call that you've got to do you, you've got to do some personal work on yourself and it's the same as we all know you have to exercise. You're going to have to exercise till the day you die. We all know that. We all know for optimal health, we have to exercise. Personal development is really just exercises for our mental health. And by the way, we have to do that regularly as well. So I wanted to put it in a really kind of relatable format. Like this is the stuff you, you need to do. And it will not only keep you sober, it will resolve a lot of past issues. It will help you feel comfortable in your own skin. It will help you fulfill your potential, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I deconstruct in the first part, I de deconstruct what an alcohol problem is that, you know, um, all these misperceptions that we have about alcohol and what a problem is and that kind of stuff. And the second part is the five pillars. And those are movement, connection, balance, process and growth. And those are the five things that if we work on them, uh, they will change how we feel, they will change our perception, and they will keep us sober. Great. And that's coming out towards the end of January, but you've also got a couple of other books which are available. I'm just looking on Amazon, and um, I can see them in there. So so they they seem great, don't they? Get sober, get free. That sounds like, that's dramatically American help, self-help. <laughs> My goodness, whatever next. What happened to your Britishness? Uh <laughs> I, I, no, I wrote that when I was in America. Uh, yeah, the book comes out in America at the end of January, and I think it's a f about three weeks after in the UK and Australia. But yeah, I'm all about the internal work because I want to emphasize, we, I, I'm sure you feel the same way, Russell. I made a very quick link between when I put some effort into this work about having boundaries or working on limiting beliefs or whatever, I get a payback like it things like measurably improved in my life 
and I saw the direct correlation between when I do this work on myself, things not only improve, actually kind of really awesome things happen too. So I've, you know, I don't want to use the word addicted, but I'm like all in on the internal personal work because I know through experience, sometimes it feels hard and sometimes it's a bit painful. Down the road, there's a payoff and it's good stuff and I want the good stuff. Great. And so how can people generally find out more about what you do, Veronica? So uh, you can go to soberful.com. There is uh, my podcast and the different programs I have and the book is all there. And then I'm on social media. I have a free Facebook group, which is on uh, Facebook, Soberful. And I'm on Instagram, Veronica J Valley. You can find me there. If you just put Veronica Valley into Google, I should come up in all the various forms that I exist online. And that's V-A-L-L-I, just yeah. so people know. Like, yeah, um, like Frankie Valley. Hey, exactly. Uh, didn't he have four seasons? Was that Frankie Valley? Yeah, Frankie Valley in the four seasons. No yeah, relation, unfortunately. Veronica Valley in the four books. That's what, <laughs> it, it has to be done. I'll work on that. Hey. Well, look, it's been a joy to talk to you. And uh, as you can probably tell, Veronica knows her stuff. So um, this is a massively important subject. And maybe this is the sort of gift people should have or um, maybe something that you can buy for yourself if you need it, or if you think you need it. Um, so, Veronica, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.